0: Thank you pat my name is sally and i'm a member of Alanon. and i want to thank the committee for asking keith and i to come here to your snow uh, we are desert people we don't even see rain much less snow and thank you for the beautiful room overlooking the olentangy river i know you know that but i just wanted to say it and the basket of food which keeps devoured And it's, uh, it's always good to be at any gathering of, of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, and it's always an honor to be asked to participate at any level. Um, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, it's the obsession of every alcoholic to control and enjoy his drinking. Well, if you're an Al-Anon of my type, it was your obsession to control and enjoy the alcoholic.
1: <laughs>
0: and I gave it my best shot.
1: Um...
0: If you if you're new to if you're in Alcoholics Anonymous and you don't know anything about Al Anon or if you're new to Al-Anon, the only difference is um, well, if you'll just look at at your literature table, AA has this Bill sees it, Al-Anon has Lois remembers. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm gonna give you what I call my Paul Harvey talk. The rest of the story, because if you heard Keith last night, you know what I mean. Um, I was born in Oklahoma, a dry state and, uh, at that time, and I never saw anyone drink. So I didn't know anything about drinking or alcoholics, anonymous certainly, or alcoholism. What I thought alcoholic or what I thought drinking was, based on movies and books, and you know what that was. It was always in a room much bigger than this, and it was uh, like on the top of an 18-story building. And it was always at night, and the lights were twinkling out there, and she would have on a white, low-cut, satin dress. And he'd have on a tuxedo, and they'd drink out of the right-shaped glasses, and danced and giggled, and that was drinking. Well, I was to find out if you're really sincere about your drinking. It came in brown paper bags between your legs, because that's the kind of beer drinking that Keith did. But... If you've read Steinbeck, if you're born in Oklahoma, what you do, you go to California. And if you're a real true Okie, you go to Bakersfield. And that's what my mother and my two, my sister and I did. Because my folks were divorced when I was very young. I don't remember my folks ever living together at all. But they were always very civilized to each other. My grandmother used to say, you don't do it unless it's very tasteful. And uh, so that's how I grew up with those kind of standards. And evidently, it wasn't very tasteful ever to... Um, to uh, express your feelings, uh, you always had to be on guard. And so sometimes when I would will fall into that thing of what living with alcoholism did to me, I have to think what it has done for me. First of all, it got me to Al-Anon, and it got me associated with people who can tell you how they feel. And they can touch you, and they can show you that they care. And so that's one of the things that my program and living with alcoholism and being with members of Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me that I can tell you how I feel. Because when I came down to al I could always tell you how, what I thought. And uh, so in this family that didn't drink and um, didn't do anything else, they were all just very stoic and dull, really. And uh, But there was one uncle, and I am of Indian and German heritage. And I had one uncle, Uncle Ferris, and he was tall and lithe and, God, he was handsome. And he wore hand-sewn silk shirts and and hats and boots. And he always had a rich widow on the string. Now, today that would be a clue, right? (laughs) But I thought he was the most fascinating person I had ever seen. And I know today that I was really the only person in the family that really liked him. So maybe there is something to to that, you know, those things that tell us that we go out and find the alcoholic. But he was exciting. And he was the only person in the family that ever did anything that was out of order. He would go away, like, for two weeks and come back and sit in a chair and rock and they'd whisper about him. And I know today that Uncle Ferris had a serious drinking problem. But I uh, didn't know anything about drinking, and I never saw anybody drink until I moved to California. And I was, as Keith said last night, I was in high school, and he came over to the campus one day. And I looked over in the corner, and there was this commotion going on. And I they were gathered around this tall, slender, handsome guy. And he was, well, he was fingers snapping thighs slapping fast talking they call it alcoholic charisma (laughs) and he was holding court well I'd never seen anything like that in Oklahoma and I so I shook my pom-poms or whatever and I got his attention and we were married and as he said we went to San Jose and, and he started college there. Now, at that time, I started doing what I know now, as I learned after I came to Al-Anon, is I started forming pictures in my mind what our life would be like. Now, this was strictly a unilateral decision. I never consulted Keith. But what I thought was that our life would be just like in the movies and the books. And we would live in a little town, maybe, maybe like here in a tree-covered street. And Keith would be chairman of the athletic department. And I would be chairman of the faculty wives. And we'd have three little children that were always clean. And he would sit in a big leather chair smoking a pipe. Keith didn't smoke, but that was the way the picture was. And there'd be a big Irish setter and the children would be huddled at his feet clean. And I'd be in the kitchen with my little apron on cooking. And that was the picture that I had It was going to be our life. So in the years that Keith was in college and he drank and he missed the team bus a lot and he didn't come home a lot, you know, it didn't matter because I knew as soon as he got out of school, that he would get down to the business of living and he would get away from those people that evidently tied him to the bar stool and locked the bar door because he would say that he just couldn't get away so it didn't matter but what i learned when i came to alan is those are pictures of normal people well my sponsor tells me normal is a gauge on my dishwasher and i shall never have it <laughs> so you know I am grateful today that I had that picture in my mind because that got me through a lot of nights standing at the window and you know what we do there. And uh, we had these two lovely children, beautiful little baby girl and a darling little curly headed boy. And Keith graduated from uh, San Jose. And he was drafted by the 49ers and we went up to the Bay Area and people were very good to us there. They were, it was an exciting life and we were able to do things that we wouldn't have been able to do. And of course my plan for him to go away and teach somewhere was just a little litch in it, but it didn't really matter because I knew as soon as he got through with this thing that he was doing there that he he would get down to this business of living. And he wouldn't drink like that. Now, when I met Keith, he told me, the first day that I met him, he told me that the car that he was driving was his. It wasn't. It was his mother's. But I believed him. And you know, when he told me that, the reason that I believed him was the reason that I believed him time after time after time when he would say to me those things that I wanted to hear, I won't drink like that anymore and I'll come home and I won't spend the money. And I believed him when he told me that because something told me that he believed it. When I would look in his eyes, he really did believe that he wouldn't do that again. And we didn't know that we were living with the disease of alcoholism. And anyway, his uncle Frank drank terrible and he would fall in the mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving. Now that was drinking too much and Keith didn't do that. Because when Keith drank, he was funny and he was had the best ideas and he had the car we did fun things. We had a lot of fun behind drinking, but of course we didn't know that we were living in the disease of alcoholism. I don't know where, I don't know where Keith crossed that invisible line that you talk about, but I know today that from what I remember about uh, when I first met him, he was drinking alcoholically then. I don't know where he crossed the line to become the alcoholic. He could have crossed it in Potts Back Door, the Stop and Sits, the Satin Doll, Maison Joseph. He could have crossed it in our living room. I don't know where. But somewhere he crossed from alcoholic drinking to being, becoming the alcoholic. And that is the disease of alcoholism, that slow, insidious, patient thing. And, you know, every day that I would see him drink and, and be drunk, I would think, well, tomorrow he won't drink. But, uh, of course, you know, he had no choice and I didn't know that. And so we were living in, uh, excuse me, in uh, San Francisco. And he uh, came home one day, and he told me that we were going to move to Canada. Well, that sounded good to me because, you know, he had somehow hooked up with the same kind of people in San Francisco that he was with in San Jose, where they just locked the door and tied him to the bar stool, I guess. And I thought, well, when we get to Canada, he won't drink like that. So I know today that we made our first geographic. And so we put our two lovely children in the car, and we were going to go to Canada, and life was going to be different. Well, it was really almost like when we crossed that Canadian border. You've seen them a hundred times, those big Foster Kleiser signs that say drink Canada dry. (laughs) I think he thought, what an order, I think I'll go through with it. (laughs) Because we were to drink our way across Canada, because you drink like that in that profession, they don't keep you, they sell you and they trade you a lot. And so we moved from Edmonton to Winnipeg to Toronto. And when we got to Toronto, by now, our daughter was old enough to start school. And I wanted her to start in the state. So the children and I came back to Bakersfield. And Keith was gonna follow at Christmas time as soon as he made that million dollars with that mausoleum. And uh, of course, I believed it. You know, I always believed everything that he said. You know, He could convince me of anything because I wanted to believe him and of course he came back to bakersville and he didn't make the million dollars and he went into the business that must be a disneyland for drunks because it was selling cars and he could he could sell cars a half a day and drink a half a day and he would always uh, he always Keith was not a traveling drunk he always came home he uh, was very um, prompt he was always home a little after two when the bars closed in california
1: <laughs>
0: and we lived in bakersville now now by now the drinking i tell you he wasn't so cute and so funny and he didn't have very good ideas but i had decided now you know i only know this in retrospect i i had no idea that i was going through this then but i had decided that if if i could create the perfect home he would come home now our, our literature talks about we want to keep our eyes on the alcoholic for some reason i thought if he was home he wouldn't drink well you wouldn't have drank in my house either by now because i tell you i was. I didn't even like those little ads with that cute little bear. I just hated beer. I hated everything about it, and uh, so we were living in Bakersfield, and we bought this little house in East Bakersfield. Now, it wasn't really like the house in the picture, but I thought if I can create the perfect home, he will come home, and that's all I wanted him to do was just come home. And Nancy talked about it last night. how she rearranged her furniture. I know today the reason that I was obsessed with my home was it was the only thing in my life that I had control over. It was the only thing that I could do that I knew would work out like I wanted it to. By now, Keith was not doing what I thought he should do. He was drinking too much, and our life certainly wasn't uh, manageable, to say the least. So evidently, I had read a book that a perfect home is a clean home. And we all take our frustrations out in different ways and uh, i was not a lay on the couch and watch the soapies type person i was busy 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 and i had decided that that uh, if i created this clean house he would come home and so that's how i took out my frustration and i was obsessed totally obsessed with my home i literally truthfully cleaned the baseboards with a toothbrush i cleaned the word frigidaire with a q-tip i washed the soap if you came to my house I, if you came to my house and sat still long enough, I'd dust your wax, you'd do something to you. Because short of boiling my kids and waxing the driveway, I was busy. So I would get up every morning and I would start on my house and I would get it clean and I would feel so good because I had accomplished something that I knew how it was going to turn out. Now I know today that I'm one of those people, I'm basically a tidy person. I'm also basically a person that, that likes a tidy lawn. But somewhere, evidently, I had decided that it was his job to mow the lawn. Now, Keith and I will be married 48 years into January, and he's never read this book, that he should mow the lawn.
1: <laughs>
0: but I had decided it was his job. And now I know today that the reason that I did it was to make him feel guilty, because I had decided that if I could make him feel guilty, he would come home. And uh, so it doesn't matter what your motive is, I guess, but it didn't work anyway.
1: So I would go out,
0: and it gets hot in Bakersfield, and it's a very arid heat, and... Uh, So I would get my house all cleaned up in the morning and then I would go out at noon in this hot Bakersfield dry heat and I would mow the lawn and I would mow it one way and back the other and then I would rake it and then I would manicure it and then I would clip it and then I would wash it down and then I'd mow it again. And all the time that I'm doing that, I can do that thing that that we learned to do. I could validate that feeling that I am the victim and he is doing this personally to me. He was down at the Wool Growers having fun and I was mowing his lawn i think that to myself, and I also knew, too, probably, that the neighbors were looking out the window, and they were saying, Look at that.
1: <laughs> Poor
0: little thing. She's out there mowing his lawn, and he's down at the woods having fun. Now, they could say it to each other or to themselves, but don't say it to me. Don't criticize Keith's drinking to me, because when you do that, it makes me feel like it's my responsibility to make him quit. And I always felt I never really felt I was responsible for his drinking, but I always thought I was responsible to make him stop. And so I did the things that we do. I did the things that we hear in Al-Anon meetings that we do, and I did them to make him feel guilty. And sometimes it worked. Sometimes he wouldn't drink for a couple of days. And uh, so I get the lawn all mowed and cleaned up. I would go in, and I would do my evening things with the children and get them in bed, and then I'd do the third thing that I knew that would make him feel guilty, and that would be that I'm basically, I'm one of those odd people I like to iron. But I knew then that if I ironed at night, when he came home, he would see that I had to iron at night because I had to mow his lawn in the daytime. (laughs) So I would mow, I would iron, and I would hang it in strategic places like the doors where he had to go in the bathroom or the door when he came in, so he would see it. And... uh, Keith came home as I said he came home every night he'd wheel into the driveway and I was at the door waiting as always my station (laughs) and while I was ironing and mowing the lawn and cleaning house all day I'd had the opportunity to think of the things that I was going to tell him
1: the things that he did
0: wrong that day and the day before and if you loved us and so did your mother and all those things that I thought he needed to know and so I would wait at the door and he would open the door and the very first thing I would say to him is where have you been? Now, this is our 20 questions because I knew where he'd been because I'd been calling the bars in the daytime to hear the bartender say, no, he's not here, and didn't know that he was. And I would say, well, if you don't tell him to come home, I'm going to down and throw a brick through your window. <laughs> and uh, he, I'd say, where have you been? And he would tell me pot's back door, the stop and sip, or wherever. And that was all right because I knew that's where And then I came up with that profound statement, the one that it took me all day to come up with. I would say, you've been drinking. <laughs> and he was very honest he'd say yeah I've had a couple so what well when he said so what it was as if a tape went in because when he said so what that was my cue to go into my spiel that I had worked on all day to tell him and I'd tell him everything he did wrong that day the day before and all along and so did you and if you loved us and so did your mother and then I would he would waddle over into his listening chair and sit there And I would stand in that position that gives us such authority. I would stand in my talking position, and I would tell him, so what? And he'd listen, and it was almost as if he knew that when I was through, I would top it off with a thing that I hated to hear most. I knew that he hated to hear most, and the thing that I would say to him was, and you're an alcoholic, and I could say alcoholic with a connotation of a four-letter word. But when I said that, he knew that I was through with my spiel, and we would go to bed, (laughs) and he would go to sleep or pass out. And I would lay there with those feelings, those feelings that we learn about in Al-Anon and they're called guilt and remorse because I would lay there and I would think, now I wonder if the kids heard me. Now you could have heard me two blocks away with your windows closed. (laughs) But I would convince myself, no, those kids were asleep. They didn't hear what I said because I had said terrible things to Keith and I'd called him terrible names and I had made accusations that had no foundation. But when I could convince myself that the kids didn't hear me, I could go to sleep, and I would get up the next morning. Now, I was the one that was supposedly the right one. I was right, and he was wrong, because I was sober, and he was drunk. And I was supposedly the one that was going to set the norm for this family. Well, I'll tell you, the disease of alcoholism is a family disease, and it was not Keith's drinking that spread the disease of alcoholism in the family. It was my reaction to his drinking. I was the one that was verbally abusive. I was the one that was... uh, bizarre. I was the one that had the crazy behavior. Keith was just a happy-go-lucky drunk. Everybody's teddy bear. Everybody loved him, drinking or not. He would just come home, do-do-do-do-do, you know.
1: (laughs) And uh, I was the one
0: that was crazy. And I would get up in the morning, and my kids never knew what I was going to be like. Now, they knew what Keith was going to be like, because they were used to his drinking. And I don't think they ever gave it much thought. I thought they thought, Dad drinks and he'll drink. But every day I would think, well, he won't drink today. I'll do something today that he won't drink. So i would get up in the morning and maybe one morning, maybe I'd od on leave it to beaver, you know, life with the father or something, father knows best, because I'd be all dressed up and starched in my pearls and everything would be wonderful. And maybe the next morning I wouldn't be saying anything. You know, the, the home that has alcoholism isn't, has sounds in it. And sometimes it's screaming and yelling and sometimes it's people hitting people. But sometimes it's that cold, dead silence. And that's the mornings that those little kids would sit at the table. And I think they thought, you know, don't, you know, don't tell her there's no milk for our cereal. Just eat it dry, but don't get her started. Don't set her off because they never knew what was going to set me off. And maybe the next morning I'd get up and I'd be screaming and yelling at the top of my voice and slamming cupboard doors. They call it primal therapy today, but it's just <laughs> screaming and yelling. And those little kids never knew what I was going to be like in the morning, and that's the way they went off to school. And the drinking progressed and my behavior progressed in that way. And he came to me one day, and he said, we're going to move from Bakersfield, and we're going to move to Los Angeles. Well, I wasn't particularly happy to go to Los Angeles, but I was ready to get out of Bakersfield, particularly because they had taken the furniture away the week before. <laughs> and, uh, I, but I didn't know anything about Los Angeles except the Coliseum and Julie's Bar across the street from it. But we didn't move downtown Los Angeles we moved to Woodland Hills and if you had given me the house that was in my picture you couldn't have given me the more perfect one because it literally was a house on the corner of Crespi and San Feliciano in Woodland Hills and it had pepper trees and eucalyptus trees and it was a perfect home and I thought now it's going to be different well it was different because the drinking now had progressed to the point where it was destructive to both of us and by now my two older children which were my sounding boards had gotten to the point where they would say, "I don't want to hear it, Mom. You know, if you're going to move, leave leave us an address and we come home from school. But don't, we don't want to hear it, because I was sure that everybody in the whole neighborhood went to Disneyland every weekend, had perfect lives, you know, never had a bill, never had a problem, and we were the only ones. So I lived with that secret that he drinks too much, and I began to do the things that I thought would keep him from drinking, because that's all I wanted him to do was just not drink. I didn't know anything about sobriety or, or Alcoholics and all, I didn't know anything. All I knew was that he drank too much. And I know today it was my reaction to the drinking that set this, this family in this tizzy. And I know that because a few years ago, Keith had a hip replacement. And uh, every day I would go to the hospital, and I think, now today I'm just going to be the regular little loving nursing mother, and I'm going to be wonderful. And I would be there five minutes, and we would be in these hideous arguments. And I would leave. I'd get in the car and I'd cry because I thought, hey, that man is, you know, he had a hip replacement. That's a serious operation and I, how I treated him. And about the fourth day, I realized the reason that I was that way was that he, had, he was on a morphine drip and he was exactly the same way as when he drank. <laughs> he would say the same thing over and over and repeat and ask me stupid questions. <laughs> and that was the way he was when he drank. And, my, and I didn't see that until about the fourth day and I realized that's what it was. It was my reaction to his actions. But um we were living in this little house in Woodland Hills, and I began to do the things that I thought would make me perfect in my children's eyes, because by now I was beginning to use them as a lever against his drinking. So I joined the PTA, and I was a bluebird leader, and I was a Cub Scout leader. And I did all those things, and I'm glad that I did it. My motive wasn't all right, but I'm glad that I did it. And of course, Keith continued to drink. And one day I was reading a magazine in a doctor's office, and uh, it was. It had an article about uh, the National Council, and I clipped it out, and I filed it away. And I asked Keith one morning if he would go with me down to the National Council. And he went, and they foiled my plan. They took me upstairs, and I talked to a lady named Doris, and she told me about Alan, I guess. I don't know what she told me because I wasn't listening. I wanted to be downstairs with Keith where he was talking to Frank. And uh, when we left there, Frank said to me, I don't think he's ready, Sally. And I didn't have any idea what he was talking about. For, so for the next nine months, Keith continued to drink. And, uh, you know, it just got worse. It didn't get better. And one morning, and by now I had gotten a job. I'm not a fast study, but because I had run away from home many, many times, and I never had any gas or cigarettes or money or a car or anything. that you can only sit in Ralph's parking lot till I open, and then you've got to <laughs> go home or go in and shop, and I was never dressed to do that. So... I decided that I was going to get a job and I was going to get enough money together to leave forever. You know, I could have kept beacons on retainer, really, because I was always leaving or asking him to leave or throwing his clothes out on the lawn or just those things that we do. And uh, so I uh, cut this number out and I called the council and I went down there and we talked to them. And so Doris told me that this lady would, would call me. And, of course, I was not interested in Al-Anon. I didn't know anything about it, nor did I want to learn. All I wanted to do was for Keith to stop drinking. And he drank for the next nine months excessively. And he called me one day at my job. Now, this job that I got, you know, we get what we can handle exactly when we're supposed to have it. And the job that I got was sitting at long tables like this, putting together little pieces for IBM. And that was fine because that was my span of concentration because all I thought about was his drinking and how could I get him to come home that night and if you talked to me that's all I thought about so I would talk to you and I would start crying and I didn't want to do that at work so that was fine that's what the job that I had so he called me one day at work and he said I've called AA now you know if we don't remember where we came from you know you're going to go back there because probably that morning or the night before I had laid in bed and I thought God if you will let him quit drinking I will do anything not go to al of course but just anything <laughs> just let him quit drinking and he called me and he said I've called AA and my first thought was well he's not that bad because I had watched days of wine and roses and face in the mirror and come fill the cup and and all those movies about alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous and I knew what Alcoholics Anonymous was it was rooms with old men in raincoats and yellow light bulbs with fly specks and he wasn't that bad and so I went home and this man came out to make a 12 step call on him Now I didn't know what a 12 step call was and I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous but I knew this man had made a big mistake or Alcoholics Anonymous had made a big mistake because they had evidently sent the wrong person because he did not tell Keith he had to clean out the garage, mow the lawn anything he told him his story of course which was nothing like Keith's he was a very physically abusive person Keith never hit me I would have hit me a hundred times if I'd have been that man I used to stand with my nose in his chest and I'd say hit me go ahead hit me I dare you I can assure you today that if he had of, you'd be listening to somebody else. But this man made his 12-step call on Keith. now, And I listened and it didn't make any sense to me because he didn't tell him any of the things that I thought he should tell him. So as Bob started to leave, I whipped out my scrapbook because over the years I had made up a scrapbook. I'd worked very diligently on this book and I had cut out everything that I could find about Alcoholics Anonymous or alcoholism or drinking and I had gone to the library and I would written down stuff I would even written the health and welfare department about a pill they were going to have how alcoholics could drink yeah. socially and uh, and I had copied things down and I had written things out of the Reader's Digest my, my Bible of authority and uh, so I whipped out this scrapbook and I showed Bob all these things and I had, I had a, a copy of a thing that said ethnic backgrounds and Indians and Swedes can't drink and Keith is Swede and that was in the top two and he didn't point that out to Keith he didn't tell him anything he just said he said something to me that Alcoholics Anonymous members have continued to do for the last 29 years he put his arm around me he said it's going to be okay Sally I'll come back and take Keith to a meeting tonight and that someone will call you. So he took Keith to the meeting that night, Thursday night, (coughs) July 20th, 1967. And this lady did call me and she was so pushy. She (laughs) talked about going to Al-Anon and I told her I couldn't possibly go that night. I was far too busy. I had important things to do. I hadn't done anything unimportant in months. (laughs) And I told her that maybe I could work it into my social schedule the next night. And so I did something the next night that I hadn't done in a long time. Because, you know, when you live with the disease of alcoholism, it affects you in a lot of ways. And some of the things that it took from me was my self-respect and my confidence. And uh, so if you're going to be the victim, you got to act like the victim. So if you're going to act like the victim, you got to dress like the victim. And so what you do is you wear... You wear hand-me-downs, and you tell people they're hand-me-downs. And they're always just a little bit too big for you. And they're just your, you know, just your basic pitifuls, and just, just a little sloppy. and you, just, you kind of slouch, and you shuffle along, and you sigh an awful lot. You know. But this night, I was going to go to my first meeting of this owl, whatever it was. And I knew that they were going to ask me how I got my husband sober because he was at his first second meeting of Owl AA that night. So I got all dressed up. And I went to that meeting, and I have heard it said in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and I've heard it said in Al-Anon meetings. I walked through those doors, and I saw you people in the looks in your eyes and those 12 steps and those 12 traditions, and I found everything that I was looking for. And I'm here to tell you that that's what happened to me on July 21, 1967. When I walked in that room, I found everything that I was looking for. Because I went to that meeting looking for all the things that made me different and all the things that made me not belong, and I found them. And if that's what you go to AA for, al you'll find them. Chuck Chamberlain said it. If God made two of us alike, one of us would be unnecessary. And uh, I found it in that meeting because there wasn't anybody dressed up really there, and there wasn't anyone whose husband was in their second meeting of AA. And there were people there who weren't married to alcoholics, had never been married alcoholics. There were people there whose were husbands were still drinking. My gosh, mine was sober and there were people there whose children were misbehaving and they didn't ask me to uh, tell them how I suffered they didn't ask me anything I remember they patted me a lot and said it's going to be okay honey and there were old women they must have been 40 years old and this was in the days of hairspray and backcombing and I thought you know they'll hit me with their hair if I don't behave and stay there hour and a half for their dreary meeting with their short little phrases and, and uh I Well This is just too much. Do they think I'm gonna spend my time in basements of hot churches? I've got things to do. My husband is sober. So I started out of the room and if you know, we get what we can handle exactly when we can handle it. Because I looked down on the literature table and then I knew why they talked in those little short phrases you know keep coming back and let go and let god and first things first because i was not allowed to read comic books when i was growing up and they had reduced this whole thing and that's nothing they laughed a lot too Uh, they had reduced this whole thing down to a comic book and there it was on the table jane's husband drinks too much well i felt sorry for jane my husband was sober he was at his second meeting and I looked at that book and I gave it a pass but you know I couldn't have handled the feeling that I had two years later when I looked at that same comic book when I was doing what my program has taught me to do to extend my hand to a newcomer to gather up literature and give it to her and I was doing that two years in Al-Anon and I really looked at the comic book there she is at the window baby in her arms child on each side and the feeling that came over me was a feeling that I had heard talked about in meetings for two years and that feeling was called guilt And I didn't have any guilt, but I couldn't have handled that feeling that first night because I remembered then, when I looked at it two years into the program, those feelings that I had because when I would stand at the window and my children would say, Mother, can I, will you, may I, my answer was always, don't bother me, I'm busy. And I knew then what they were talking about when they talked about that guilt feeling of what you had done, what was your part, because I had deprived my children from the only thing that I was the only person that could give them, a mother's time and a mother's love because I was as obsessed with Keith drinking, more obsessed with Keith's drinking than he was. But I gave that book a pass, and I gave Alan on a pass that night, I'll tell you. I was not going to go back and sit with those old broads.
1: <laughs> I mean, they were all old.
0: And uh, so I went home, and I decided that all Keith really needed to do was to just stay home. Now, he was three days in the program. And he... He took to AA just like he drank, just like he lives life, with a lot of zest and enthusiasm. And uh, by now his pool business was reduced down to ten accounts, so he didn't have a lot of work to do. And he would go to meetings morning, noon, and night. And the meetings would start at 8. He would leave at 6. They were over at 9.30 or 10, and he wouldn't get home until 12 or 1. And I just thought that was terrible. I did not know that the fellowship is as important as the meeting. And uh, so I decided that I would go to meetings with him. So literally I was riding shotgun because I wanted to see that he went to the meeting. And I would get to the meetings, And as soon as they found out that I wasn't an alcoholic, they didn't talk to me. They didn't ask me to participate. They didn't even, they didn't even ask me to lead the silent meditation, nothing. They just ignored me. And they'd say to Keith, well, now how long has it been, Keith? He'd say five days. Wonderful, wonderful. And they'd pat him on the back. And I thought, you know, this is not right. And I looked around the room. And there are an awful lot of beautiful ladies in alcoholic phenomena. <laughs> and he would get these phone calls, and I thought, that's it. He's going to women's stag meetings. <laughs> and he'd go to meetings where they would teach him to say things that just to thwart me, things like, Well, I'm doing the best I can do, or I'm sober, aren't I? Or the thing that I hated most, it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. My sponsor says. <laughs> And I began to do what I had heard people say. I began to resent Alcoholics Anonymous. I began to resent sobriety, and I would not have been too unhappy if a train hadn't run over Clancy. (laughs) And I would hear people say, well, she won't be happy till he drinks. And I thought, what a terrible thing for them to say. But I was there, and I resented it because sobriety was not what I thought it should be. It was not what it was all cracked up to be, I'll tell you, because now Keith didn't drink. He went to meetings all the time, morning, noon, and night, night meetings. And he went went away on trips. And he did things with people, and people would call him. And so he told me one day, he said, Now I'm going to go up to Tehachapi Saturday to take a a panel up there for an anniversary meeting. Well, I had to stay home and clean house because I had to work. And uh, I had decided now that if Keith would stay home, if I would look like the ladies in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went down and I had my hair frosted. Now I didn't know that you had to do any more than just have it done. I didn't know you had to keep it up. <laughs> so he, he said, "Now somebody's going to pick me up and uh, I'm going to go to Tehachapi." Well, I'm this Saturday morning. I'm standing in my kitchen. In my, maybe you had one of these that are called here all your fault robes. They're those little chenille numbers. Have the have the little bare spots on where you've picked the chenille off while you're standing at the window waiting for him to come home. <laughs> have little holes in them from the chlorine because you've worn them all day and little chocolate and coffee stains and kleenex coming out of the pocket tied with something that never belonged to that garment and those rubbly rubber head rubber go-aheads that we used to wear i'm standing in the kitchen and she comes in wanda drives up in the driveway in her big black car remember the old loretta young shows where she used to come in through the door Well, that was it. Now, this lady might look like Godzilla for all I know, but where my uh, self-esteem was that day, she was a cross between maybe Sharon Stone and Farrah Fawcett. And she swept into our doorway and she said, Oh, Keithy. mm -hmm."
1: (laughs) Then she looked in the
0: kitchen. I'm standing there in my unkept frosted hair and my it's all your fault robe. And she said, Oh, Keith. Now, (laughs) what was her name? And I thought, you're going to know my name, bitch. <laughs>
1: And at that moment, I
0: realized that if you have one minute of program, you have something to give away. Because I instantly remembered what they talked about in that first meeting. They talked about having two programs in one home. They talked about two family, two, two people in different meetings. They talked about, about relationships. And I remembered it. And we get what we need exactly on schedule. Because Keith got a call the next day from, from Jim, MC. And he said, I want to have you come over and talk to me. And he said, and by the way, does your wife go to Al-Anon? And I said, of course, I can tell her about it. And I went over with Keith on that 12-step call, and I talked to Valerie about Al-Anon, and I guess Valerie still goes today. So I went back to my second meeting of Al-Anon because Valerie needed to go, and I took her. (laughs) And I I went to the Tarzan Open discussion meeting, and I went with the thing that makes all the difference in the world. I went with a different attitude. I went listening for the feelings and not looking for the situation, and I found them. And I found the thing in that meeting that was the most important thing to me in the beginning of my Al-Anon, and that was my sponsor. Now, Mary Fran was a terrible housekeeper. But, and she wasn't real kind to me either. But when she would say something, I knew that she believed it, and I knew that she never asked me to do anything that she wouldn't do. And so I worked with Mary Fran, and she told me the things that I needed to know. She explained the disease of alcoholism to me the way that it was so simple to me. She explained it this way. She, I, she said, you know why Keith drank? And I said, well, sure, he just, you know, just drank because he drank. His family all drinks. And she said, no, let me tell you this. She said, you have children, don't you? And I said, yes. She said, do you remember the feeling that you had when you saw your first baby born? And I said, yes. And she said, if Keith could put down on paper the emotions that made him drink, he would have, you would have as good a chance of understanding those emotions as he had To understand that emotion that you had and that made sense to me because i never knew why keith drank and it doesn't make any difference because he doesn't drink today and mary friend talked about the second step and i had no problem with that because i remember the nights i used to get in the car and go to the bars and no matter you know in my nightgown and a Lerman sweater and something on my head and just make a scene because it didn't matter you know those people didn't matter those people weren't important and the things that I would do in the neighborhood. The second step really just fit me to a T. But she talked about a higher power. And I was raised in the Midwest, and I didn't have any quarrel with a higher power. But I found that he's really very courteous, and he's out there, and he's not going to come in unless I invite him. And so she talked about prayer. And I made a commitment to myself some 29 years ago that I would not go to bed without having been on my knees. And I can honestly say that I don't think I've ever gone to bed without having been on my knees. Now, that's not to say that I haven't get, had to get out of bed sometimes to get on my knees. But I don't think I've ever gone to sleep without having been on my knees. And my prayer that night was the same as it was last night, and it will be the same tonight if I don't forget. And that's I'm grateful for everything that he's given me, and I'm grateful for everything that he's left me. But I'm more grateful for the things that he's taken away. Because he's taken away those feelings that I came into Al-Anon with, that sense of impending doom, that hole in the gut, that knot in the stomach, that it's bad today and it's going to be bad tomorrow and it'll always be bad. And he's replaced them with people and conferences and, you know, friends and all the things that we do. Our life today is totally the programs of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. I don't have a big problem with people outside the program but in the business that we're in it is important sometimes that we do entertain people who don't understand the program and i can fake it you know i can listen to her kids about her pta and her kids and how many things she can make out of a clorox bottle for about
1: (laughs) five (laughs) minutes and i can smile
0: and act like i'm interested
1: but uh you know
0: that's what the program has taught me to live in the world today as, as normal people try to live But uh, Keith and I have been very fortunate. We've been to five internationals. And the first one, Denver, you know, we were just confused. We didn't know the (laughs) coffee pot alone was enough to throw you there. But the one that Keith talked about last night in New Orleans, uh, that one was the one that turned my life around because we went on Thursday and people from all over the world came and they blew up balloons and they decorated that room and they had flags from every country that was represented. And then Sunday morning when we went over to the Superdome and I sat in that Superdome with all those people and I looked up on the stage and I thought, now how did we get here? How did we get from Bakersfield to the Superdome in New Orleans? And then I looked in behind the stage was the theme of that conference, The Joy of Living. And I knew then and I know today that I've had more than my share and I thank you for that. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.